Hi, everybody. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes on your computer. Go to the iTunes store. Don't worry, it's free to go there. And click on podcast on the bar in the upper left-hand corner that usually says music and search for us. Search for history. And then go to reviews and give us a five-star review. It's greatly appreciated and would help us so much. One of my favorite podcasts that I listen to is Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, which is exactly what it says. It's hardcore And if you love history, I mean you really love it, you need to listen to this podcast. Carlin is a great storyteller. He does an excellent comparative analysis of historical events. Um, Now, episodes only come out every few months, but they will run five to six hours long. Um, He just recently, last year, he had a three-part show on the ancient kings of Mesopotamia, which ran a total of nearly 20 hours. It was great, man. Now, his latest show just came out last week, and I enjoyed listening to it while I was driving back from Chicago on Monday. It was titled The Celtic Holocaust, about how Julius Caesar and the Romans conquered and eliminated the Celtic culture in Gaul, that's France, during the mid-first century BCE. And he, uh, he described how that fit in with the end of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Roman Empire, and it was awesome. Six hours, and I'll probably listen to it again. It was that good. Uh, I will listen at some point. So, when, uh, which gets me to thinking, when this podcast grows up, that's history, I, I hope it grows up to be Dan Carlin. So... Between our little weekly episodes, if you need to fill in some time with something in years and you love history, uh, give Dan Carlin's Hardcore History a listen. You can find it on iTunes. You can also find it at his website, dancarlin.com. Now, there's an apocryphal story. And remember what I've said about the word apocryphal? That's just a PhD word for bullshit. Well, the story, it's told it's been told for a number of years and really it's really just a variation on an old joke it's about captain frederick pabst who was the founder of course of pabst brewing and pabst blue ribbon beer of milwaukee so story goes one afternoon the captain walks onto the floor of his milwaukee brewery with some visiting dignitaries and he's showing off this modern state-of-the-art facility that he built there in the late 19th century. Now, the visitors were incredibly impressed with the massive copper brew kettles, the tall oak fermenting tanks, and the endless rows of racked beer lagering in the cool storage rooms. But the captain pointed out to his guest that none of this would be possible without his superb, strong, and durable workforce, of whom he was particularly proud, and most of them were German-American immigrants. So, The captain, he turns and he points, he says, you see that fire bucket hanging on the wall? Any of my men can fill that pail with beer and drink it down as you would a glassful. And so turning to a nearby employee to prove it, the captain said in a raised voice, isn't that so, Peter? Yeah, Herr Captain, replied the worker, but excuse me just one minute. And Peter he runs out of the room and goes into another room from where they're standing. And in about two or three minutes later, he comes right back out and he goes and he grabs the fire bucket and he, he goes over to one of the, the tanks and he fills it up with beer and he hoists it to his mouth and he drains it in one long pull. Amazed and impressed by the feat, the visitors and the captain congratulated the beaming employee and proceeded onward with their tour through the brewery. Now, sometime later, a couple of days or so, Captain Paps came back there and found Peter working. And uh, he asked Peter, said, now, why did you leave the room before coming out to drink that bucket of beer? And the Peter, he looked down, he said, somewhat embarrassed, well, Captain, I didn't want to let you down. I didn't know for sure I could do it, so I just went out to try it first. See, I told you it was an old joke. I'm Alan Tapman, and because no good story ever began with, this one time we were eating a salad, this is history, the story of alcohol. 
So tonight I was planning on talking about German brewers, and I will. I'm going to get to that, but uh, that, something else is going to come up in between. I, I feel a rant coming on. Get ready. Anyway, but I'm enjoying one of the few American lagers that actually follows the German purity law of Reinheitsgebot, and that's Kräftig Lager from the William K. Bush Brewing Company of St. Louis. Now, this is not Anheuser-Busch. This is Billy Bush, the great-grandson great of Adolphus Bush and the great-great-grandson of Eberhard Anheuser. And this is a fantastic beer. And he started his brewery after Anheuser-Busch was bought up by InBev. Now, I met Billy. He's been to the been to our pub and he's a great guy very passionate about his brewing this is an excellent lager beer kreftig and kreftig light these lagers taste exactly what beer should taste like no shortcuts no additions just purity they use only the highest quality all natural ingredients hallertal hops from germany two row barley from europe six row barley from north america a nice robust lager yeast pure water following a time-honored brewing tradition to deliver cold, refreshing lager beers with bold beer flavors, the way beer used to be when it was first brewed in America. Lager beer, that is. Kreftig and Kreftig Light, we get ours from our friends at Fechtel Beverage, and you can find Kreftig at a store near you. So, prost. Mm. It's very tasty. It's a nice beer. It really is. But this week, I'm aggravated, um, annoyed. I, I mean, you could almost say I'm pissed off. And the cause of my annoyance is nothing new. This is something that has burned my ass before, and I just don't know what to do about it other than rant. It's mendacity. Especially mendacity on the internet. Deceits, falsehoods, fabrications, dishonesty, spuriousness, inaccuracies. Call, you what it, call it what it is. Fucking lies. So I'm going to start today with a rant. So buckle up. Here we go. Now, back when I did episode 19, that's the weird, whacked, and what the fuck of liquor. It's about all these weird alcohol drinks or bizarre alcohol drinks. If you haven't listened to it, you might want to go give it a listen. It's I, Thought it was a pretty good show. I, I googled just weird alcoholic drinks, bizarre alcoholic drinks. I don't exactly remember it, all the terms that I use, but I came across these references to various drinks: snakes and lizards and mice soaked in rice wine uh, from the from Asia, um, the sour toe cocktail from the Sourdough Saloon in Dawson City in the Yukon Territory, Korean poop wine among other things that kept popping up on these lists, but these were all true, and they could all be independently verified by other reputable sources. I even got a hold of people that I knew that had some legitimate connection to these different cultures and places and asked them about, have you ever heard of this stuff? And surprisingly, yeah, you know, uh, uh, my friend John Barry and Dave Fisher um, both of them have spent time in Asia, and they said, yeah, they've, they've got some crazy fucking liquor over there. It's got all kinds of stuff soaking in it. Anyway, so if you haven't listened to that episode, go give it a listen. But while I was doing my research for that episode, there was another fucked up concoction that kept popping up that I found absolutely unbelievable. Seagull wine. On more than 30 websites, and I quit counting at 30. I probably could have found more. All of these reports of seagull wine. And what it was, they took a seagull, a dead one, they stuck it in a big glass jar, filled it with water, sealed the lid, and let it sit out in the sun. This was said to be made by Eskimos, Inuits, and, and they would let it sit in the sun until it fermented. Now, all of these reports of seagull wine go back to one credited source. The discovery of this drink to one person, and that's the only person alone who said anything about it or ever wrote anything about it other than to repeat her original story. And it was a Yahoo News reporter named Suzanne Donahue. And all of these mentions of her said that she 
met the Inuits of Greenland who made seagull wine. And most of the mentions of this, including that by the drinks business, an otherwise reputable website devoted to the alcohol trade, and wineandabout.com, a website devoted to the wine trade, they ran these stories about seagull wine with a quote from Donahue herself, which gave her description of the liquor as thus, If you opened up a Toyota's carburetor and drank the leftover fluid from inside, that would be pretty close. It goes down hard and it settles even worse. But I must say, it sure gets people inebriated in a hurry. And the next day's hangover is nothing short of spectacular. You feel like you've been repeatedly beaten over the head by a giant, well, seagull, unquote. So, now, I looked... And I first read this, I said immediately, my bullshit meter was going off the chart. Firstly, there are no fermentable sugars in a seagull. None. And as all of you know, to make alcohol, you have to have fermentable sugars. Now, secondly, I couldn't find any scholarly research about this in the Inuit culture at all. I couldn't find any. And thirdly... I couldn't find an online bio about a writer with Yahoo News named Susan Donahue, past or present, or any article that had her timeline on it other than somebody else's reporting the line. So, in other words, seagull wine was a hoax, a joke. What is amazing is that so many websites, including trade journals, news outlets, clickbait sites, even The Guardian in UK and the UK's Independent and Ripley's Believe It or Not, were all fooled by this hoax. Now, I have a couple of things to say about this type of fucking shit on the Internet. Before you post this kind of bullshit as true, do some fucking research. And when I say research, I don't mean to poke around and see if it's on more than one website. Do some real fucking research. But you know, most of us are just consumers of this kind of bullshit. Oh, it's funny, and you're gullible, no harm, no foul, right? Wrong! Even if it's just like this, call call it what it is. It's bullshit. And the websites that post this shit, don't be fucking lazy. You're a reporter, goddammit. This is especially true to whoever on these trade news sites that okayed the story to be run. Really? Whoever the moderator is on over on the Guardian and the writers at the Independent and whining about and drinks business and the illustrator at Ripley's Believe It or Not, and I know other names, I could say them, but I'm not. I'm not going to call them out. I'm not going to embarrass them. But you guys call yourselves journalists? Well... I know they don't at Ripley's. They've been spewing bullshit out for 99 years. But the rest of them, you're you're reporters, you're bloggers. If you're a blogger, you're a reporter. You must think you're a journalist or you wouldn't have put your name on the fucking articles. So, fuck you. You're all lazy fucks. So, what's that have to do with what's going on now? That was episode 19. We're now on episode 37. So while I'm researching for this week and last week, you know, I talked about what makes a lager beer and what type of beer that developed here in the U.S. over the last century and a half by German immigrants, or perhaps I should say Americanized version of German lager beer. And we'll look into that just a little more later. And then I also talked about what makes an ale and a consensus opinion across the web and in a lot of magazines and books is that lager just mysteriously seemed to pop onto the scene in Bavaria and Bohemia sometime after the end of the 15th century and before the middle of the 19th. Now, I know I talked about this last week, but I want to go over this again because it's just been bothering me. It's been bugging me since I recorded last week's show and I listened to last week's show and it's just been bothering the shit out of me, uh, this whole thing. So anyway, what I find very strange about this assertion, and I won't call it a fact, you know, that is that lager yeast mysteriously appeared in Europe sometime after the end of the 15th century and just before the middle of the 19th. It's unbelievable. And 
We talked last week about the only discovery ever of a wild strain of lager yeast being found in Patagonia just within the last decade. That's what we know for certain about lager yeast. It appeared in Bavaria and Bohemia sometime before the mid-19th century, and there's only one known wild strain of lager yeast ever found, and that was in Patagonia in 2010. And that was on, I found that story first on LiveScience.com and ScientificAmerican.com. And then I went and did the, I looked at the notes, and they both based their article on a peer-reviewed academic paper from the National Academy of Sciences that was written in conjunction with no less than eight scientists from various schools, including the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the University of Argentina Laboratory of Applied Biotechnologies, the University of Colorado School of Medicine Department of Applied Biology and Genetics, Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, and their Department of Genetics and Center for Genome Sciences, the University of Lisbon, Portugal Center of Microbiology, now, all of these people, the eight that reviewed this or that were part of writing this, this paper, all of them agreed, yes, the strains of lager used today in the brewing of beer are 99.5% genetically identical to the wild strain of lager yeast found in Patagonia just 10 years ago and that the genetic evolution and differences between the domestic strains used in brewing and the wild strain occurred within the last 500 years. Now, I don't know. I don't know genetics. I don't know how to do genetics, but I trust science. And I trust that these people know what they're doing. I trust modern medicine. I trust science. I think they probably know more than the next person I'm going to introduce you to. And that's just about the only true statement we know for certain regarding the age of lager beer. It's probably came along in Europe sometime within the last 500 years. So, for me, what is absolutely mind-boggling and infuriating is that so many other sources including supposedly reputable sources online just blindly claim that lager beer was brewed in Bavaria and Bohemia as far back as the 1200s CE. And that is just absolutely unproven. There's no factual evidence of that. It's just an assertion. And while it may not be bullshit, although I'm saying it's bullshit, it definitely smells like it. What I found was that many of the websites that are, were dedicated to beer and the history of beer, they posted this 1200s date as the beginning of lager brewing in Europe. They usually refer, referenced a concise timeline of the history of beer written by a Professor Linda Raley of Texas Tech University. And reading through her concise history uh, what was it? Concise timeline uh, of the history of beer. Uh, there were some glaring factual errors related to her quote research unquote. Ah, I gotta have a drink. First, she states Noah's provisions on the ark included beer. All right. Any historian worth their title wouldn't have written that. They would have written that it was noted in the Bible that Noah had beer on the ark. They wouldn't have said he had beer on the ark. But nowhere in the biblical story of Noah in the King James Version is beer mentioned at all. The story does reference Noah planting a vineyard once the ark landed and then in the next verse he drinks the wine and the next verse he gets drunk and he passes out and the next Next line, his son see him naked in the, I shouldn't say verse, line. His son see him naked in a tent, which is a sin and abomination and from God, you know. Eh, there weren't very many people left and 
you know, 950 years is how long Noah lived. Of course, somebody's going to see him naked sooner or later. Professor Rayleigh also went on to write that the Romans introduced beer to Northern Europe in 55 BCE. And fuck that. I'm telling you. I need more beer. That, kids, is where I knew whoever had fucking written this was not a historian. Uh, because Roman historians, chroniclers, and even Julius Caesar himself in his history of the Gallic Wars mentions finding the Celts of Gaul and Britain as well as the Germanic tribes across the Rhine. Well, he said they were all drinking beer. They were beer-drinking cultures, and they fell in love with wine when it was introduced to them by the Mediterranean cultures. And I have saw that in a number of historical um, resources. Professor Rayleigh, she also went on to write that brewing in Europe didn't begin until the 500s, and by 1000 CE, it had shifted from brewing in the home to being centralized in monasteries. Oh, God damn it. And then it was after that that her outline contains two contradictory statements. From the 1200s, Germans preferred cold temperature lagers stored in caves in the Alps. Well, a lot of Germany's a long fucking way from the Alps, so I guess that was going to be a long beer run if you needed to get a to, to get a barrel of beer. And a bit later, just like three or four more lines down the way, she states that in 1420, a very specific year when she's been talking in gross generalizations previous to that, this, Germans developed the lager method of brewing. And she says nothing else, no other information expounding on that claim, even though just two lines earlier, she had written that from the 1200s on, Germans preferred cold temperature lager beer stored in caves in the Alps. And... And she goes on with more bullshit from there. She later claims that in 1612, the first commercial brewery opened in North America in New Amsterdam, that is New York City, Manhattan. And it opened, she wrote this, this, this fucking blew me away. After colonists advertised in London's newspapers for experienced brewers, she says, now I'm going to repeat this. She claimed that in 1612, the first commercial brewery opened in North America, New Amsterdam, after colonists advertised in London newspapers for experienced brewers. Okay, this thing is so wrought with fucking inaccuracies that it just, it, it, it's making my ears burn. First off, where to begin here? Okay, New Amsterdam was settled by the Dutch. That's the people from Holland. They wouldn't have been advertising in a London newspaper for brewers. And the second thing that's stupid, she said that happened in 1612. The Dutch didn't arrive in Manhattan until 1613. For fuck's sake. This is not hard stuff to, to research and to get right, by the way. Even back in 1996 or 98 when, she first, when this was first posted online. Oh, by the way... Um, Somebody asked me about this this week. Uh, last week, I said that probably, my exact words were, some French fucks opened a brewery in St. Louis sometime before Adam Lemp. And guess what? Yes, that is true. I went and looked it up. It was a Frenchman, Jacques de la Sousse de Saint-Vrain. He was the son of a French aristocratic family who settled in Louisiana after the French Revolution, and he established a commercial ale brewery in 1810 in St. Louis. And this is according to city directories and tax rolls of the time. And yes, he was a French fuck, so there it is. Now, back to the concise timeline of beer history by one professor, Linda Rayleigh. So of Texas Tech University, and I'm almost done picking her apart. She also goes on to state that during the 1700s, the, use, the yeast used to make bread was exactly the same as those used in brewing. This is true with ale yeast, but you know, remember, she's already established that lager yeast has already exist, but, and you can't brew, you can't make bread with lager yeast. 
And then she wrote that Louis Pasteur discovered how yeast worked in the process of fermentation in 1876. Well, actually, it was in the 1850s that he discovered how fermentation came about through yeast. It was in 1876 that he developed the process of pasteurization, which I'll talk about uh, sometime later, if not today, next week, and how that really, really helped the American brewing industry. More on that later, as I say. And then she states that there were over 2,000 breweries in the United States in 1880, which is technically true because the National Archives states that at the time, in 1880, there were over 4,000 commercial breweries in the United States. There's other shit that she wrote that just bothered me, and I, I couldn't stand it, mainly because... So many websites were using this as a source. So I contacted, I had to find out, I contacted the media relations department at Texas Tech University, and I spoke to a very nice young lady there, Amanda Castro-Christ, who is a senior editor there with the communications and marketing department, and I told her I was doing the podcast and I was trying to track down the source of this concise timeline of beer history. If there was or ever had been, a professor, Linda Rayleigh, or an instructor named Linda Rayleigh, because sometimes on the sources it was listed that way at Texas Tech, going back to when she published it in 1998. So in about a half hour, she promptly got back with me and said, yes, there had been a Linda Rayleigh at Texas Tech, but she was only a graduate student in, get this, hotel and restaurant management program, So that's probably the beer connection. Oh, I serve it. So there, nothing, and I'm not downplaying anybody in the hotel and restaurant management. There's some great schools out there. I know people that have done very well with them. All right. What I'm saying is leave the history to people that do history. All right. And also she was a graduate student. She'd never been a pro never been an instructor, not even a TA, is what this young lady told me, much less a professor. So she was either padding her credentials, if she did in fact publish the original article, or someone was using her name to falsely give this written timeline some fake veracity. Anyway, again, whoever used this on their brew pubs websites, and guess what? A lot of brew pubs did. And some and, and some pages on beer history and about beer and different stuff like that. Well, you were lazy if you put that on there and you didn't verify this stuff. Now, I, I'm not expecting you to know all the intricacies of the history of beer. I, I don't. I, I'll admit it. I don't. But, you know, you don't just take something that you find on the Internet and say it's the gospel. That's lazy. That's plain and simple. I guess the reason I get so worked up over this kind of shit is that really it's not that hard to verify stuff if you just do a little work. I look at the research that a podcaster like like I mentioned at the top of the show, Dan Carlin does with Hardcore History. He does so much work, especially with primary resources and translations of primary sources. And it's a lot of work, what he's doing. I mean, he's basically writing these conversational papers every time he does a podcast with with really in-depth research. And granted, my musings here are a drop in the bucket compared to the work that he does. But then I listen to other podcasts or I read things online and I see these lies, these canards, prevarications, bullshit. I'm, I, I'm not going to mention any names of other podcasts who I've caught in lies. And, and I think, why? Why don't you, you know, you're putting your name on this and you're, you're stating this to be a fact. And one I'll give you was, and I won't say the name of the podcast, but... Um, Guy claimed that Lake Superior was the deepest freshwater lake in the world. And it's not. It's not even the deepest freshwater lake in North America. That's Crater Lake in Oregon. But anyway, 
this guy's like he's a travel he's a travel blogger. He he talks about traveling. A podcast. He talks about traveling. And he's and and then, you know, the deepest freshwater lake in the world is Lake Baikal. It's in the, the Russia. So anyway. But I uh, I had to email him on that and I never got a response back. But anyway. And this stuff of passing on information that's not true. This also holds for people when you promote news articles or historical articles on social media. You're putting your name on that. Now, I you I've done it. I've made accidents like that, but as soon as I find it out, I I I the, the and I I've gotten better. But when I, when everybody when we first were getting into this social media and all of these news stories, I mean, I mean, we, they were just flying, you know. And nobody was doing any background work. I always do a little background work now. I try to follow up and see if this story has any veracity before I put it out there. you got to have some intellectual curiosity. Either that or you don't care and what you're sharing with others is not true. And if that's the case, well, I don't know what to tell you. I, I think it's wrong. I think it's wrong. I think it's irresponsible when people do that. Here's what I'm going to tell you today. I promise you what I tell you here on this podcast. I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure from this point on, especially so. I'm going to verify everything that I tell you here. And if I do make a mistake and I push along information that I later discover is a fallacy, I'm going to admit it. I'm going to retract it and correct anything that I might inadvertently pass on to you as fact. If a story is apocryphal, or probably apocryphal, or if I know that it's not true, but it's still an anecdotally funny story relevant to the subject, I'm going to tell you up front. That's my promise to you, the listener, from now on. And that's my rant for this week. Now I'm going to talk about German-American brewers. First, I'm going to have another drink of this delicious, craftig, lager beer as I told you last week we're going to talk about German immigrants where's my bottle opener who came to America and changed the face of brewing in the United States in the last half of the 19th century and even into the 20th century and they still have a great impact upon the brewing world today. And how this happened at the time that it did, that is the 1840s and 1850s, is really just an accident of history. How did many well-educated, industrious German immigrants leave a country where they felt like The monarchies and the aristocracy were keeping them from reaching their greatest potential, that is, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they had enough gumption to cross the Atlantic to a country welcoming them. Keep your ancient lands with storied pomp. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these the homeless tempest-tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Now granted, Emma Lazarus's poem, The New Colossus, which is emblazoned on the Statue of Liberty, it wasn't written for another 40 years after the arrival of these first German brewers, but the sentiment has always been there. It's always been there in this country, for the most part. We are a nation of immigrants. But as time goes by, these children of immigrants and then their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren and then further generations, they forget. They forget where they came from. Unless you're one of the first nations of people who we wrongly refer to as Indians or unless you're the descendant of slaves forcibly brought to these shores from Africa, most Americans came to this country from somewhere else by more or less their own volition. Now, of course, this isn't always true. There are plenty of examples of criminals or people who were in debt 
that came over as indentured servants. This is the case with some of my ancestry on the Tapman side of the family who arrived in uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony in the 1600s. But these people, they build a life for themselves, first in the British colonies and then the descendants in the United States. Of course, there's always been a nativist element who have feared immigrants, especially Catholic immigration. Even during the colonial period, Catholics weren't welcomed in most of the colonies. Maryland being the exception, established by Lord Baltimore for Catholic refugees fleeing England in the 1630s, which was increasingly growing more anti-Catholic with the rise of the Puritans and Oliver Cromwell in Parliament. In the 1700s, Presbyterian Ulster Scots, who immigrated from Northern Ireland to America, were pushed out onto the frontier, away from the settled Anglican areas of British North America. Nativism didn't really play much of a role in the first six years of the young United States. It was there, but it didn't really come out a lot, mainly because there was little immigration. But with the coming of the railroad in the mid-19th century and opportunities for employment in areas of unskilled labor, immigrants, the tired and the poor, they were yearning to breathe free and they came to America for the work. In the 1840s, the Know Nothing Political Party, a nativist movement, first appeared with a platform that was held up first and foremost, by the belief that there was a conspiracy afoot. Conspiracy being led by the Vatican that encouraged Catholic immigrants to the United States in order to take over the government. They firmly believed this. In the spring and summer of 1844 in Philadelphia, there were two anti-Catholic riots, one in May and one in July, sparked by know-nothing nativists, who attacked an Irish Catholic church and burned it. And immigrants, the Irish immigrants fought back. It resulted in 20 deaths, including three deaths and 23 casualties to local militiamen who were called out by the governor of Pennsylvania to quell the fighting. Ironically, a German Catholic church that was under construction in Philadelphia at the time wasn't even touched. German immigration in 1844 wasn't yet seen as a threat by these nativists. Not yet, anyway. But then in 1848 and 1849, when the German immigrants fleeing from the failed social revolutions in the states that formerly comprised the Holy Roman Empire, started to land on these shores, the hatred turned up. Between 1854 and 1858, there were six anti-Catholic protests that turned into riots headed by the Know-Nothings attacking both Irish but mainly German immigrants in St. Louis in 1854, Cincinnati and Louisville in 55, Baltimore and Washington in 56 and 57 respectively, and New Orleans in 1858. In 1855 in Chicago, I talked about this when I talked about the history of prohibition in Chicago and the time leading up to it. The German immigrants protested when Mayor Levi Boone, the grandson of Daniel Boone and a member of the Know Nothings, who by this time had conveniently changed their name to the American Party, well, Boone raised the licensing fees on taverns from $50 to $300 per annum. However, those taverns owned by nativist elements and members of the know-nothings were conveniently overlooked, while the taverns and beer gardens of the German immigrants, who not being able to afford this 600% increase in the licensing fee, they opened anyway, on Sundays even, which was also forbidden, but for working men and women and their families, especially Germans, Sunday was their one day to socialize in the old world tradition. 
And those German tavern owners that did open on Sunday and didn't have a license, they were arrested and their premises were shut down. And in some cases, their property was looted and pillaged by what we can only assume were anti-Catholic, anti-German mobs. Now, when the German populace of Chicago gathered and marched on Cook County Jail to show solidarity for their neighbors and friends who had been jailed, the police opened fire on the crowd. One man was killed. A police officer was badly injured, and he lost his arm to amputation. The crowd dispersed when cannons were rolled out in front of the courthouse with artillery men at the ready to open fire. And this was the tenor of the times in America when most of the founders of the country's great brewing empires began to arrive from Germany. Now, some arrived a bit earlier, but they would have still felt the sting of anti-immigrant fervor. One case of that is David Yingling, who arrived in 1828, and he started an ale brewery the very next year in the coal mining town of Pottsville, Pennsylvania. And while Pottsville was not really on the frontier, it wasn't a very sparsely, sparsely populated part of the foothills of the Allegheny Mountains. So I guess it was a frontier in, in regard to civilization. It was kind of separated and remote from the more settled areas along the seaboard and the Susquehanna River. You know, and the funny thing about frontiers is they do tend to equalize men. Out on the frontier, it's less about what you are and more about who you are. And when I say who you are, I mean in regards to what type of person you are. Pottsville needed a brewery, and Yingling answered the call. And the reason Yingling first brewed ales and not lagers was because lager yeast was not yet available in the United States. Not until the advent of the fast-sailing clipper ships in the mid-19th century that could sail from ports in northern Europe to the U.S. Atlantic seaboard in two weeks, more or less, depending upon weather and water. It was not until then when it was possible to carry lager yeast across the Atlantic before it perished. Now, as Yingling, uh, master brewer from today, John Callahan put it on a video I saw online, David Yingling brewed the beer that he could and what the uh, miners in the area wanted. And for the first 20 years of his brewery, that was ale. But the lager... Uh, it came alongside the ales. It came around about 1850 at Yingling Brewery, which is the oldest continually operating brewery in the United States. Eberhard Anheuser from the Rhineland Palatine area of Germany, he arrived in 1842. And he took over the struggling Bavarian Brewery Company of St. Louis in 1853. Valentin Blatz arrived from Bavaria in 1848, and he opened his brewery in Milwaukee in 1850, same year that Joseph Schlitz arrived in Milwaukee from the Duchy of Hesse. And in 1856, he became manager of the Krug, or Krug Brewery. I'm not sure how it's said. And just two years later, he married Krug's widow and changed the brewery name to the Joseph Schlitz Brewery. Frederick Papps took a different route into the world of brewing. Born in Prussia in 1836, he immigrated first to Milwaukee with his parents in 1848, and then the family moved to Chicago, where his mother died in a cholera epidemic in 1849. Frederick and his father eked out a living as waiters and busboys, but an opportunity for the younger Paps came along to sign up as a cabin boy on a Lake Michigan steamer. It was while in this position that he met Philip Best, who owned a thriving brewery in Milwaukee, and the two men became friends. Paps earned his nickname, Captain, as he later learned how to pilot the steamships, on Lake Michigan. And he married his 
He married his friend, Best's daughter, in 1862, and the next year he purchased a half interest in his father-in-law's brewery. Adolphus Bush was also born in the Duchy of Hesse, same as Joseph Schlitz, in 1839, and the 21st child of 22 children of a prosperous wholesaler of winery and brewery supplies. In 1857, after completing his education in Belgium, Adolphus, along with three older brothers, immigrated to the United States, and they settled in St. Louis. And Bush started the first brewery supply business in that town, with a small inheritance that he had received after his father's passing. It was during this time when he called upon the more than 30 breweries in St. Louis, and then he met Eberhard Anheuser. And in 1861, he married Anheuser's daughter, and the rest, as they say, is history. Adolf Coors, or Adolf Coors, however you want to say it, is a generation behind the aforementioned brewers, but given the success of his company, he gets a mention here. He was born in 1847 in Prussia, raised in Westphalia. Coors, which at that time, before he came to the States, was spelled K-O-H-R-S, apprenticed under a brewer in Dortmund for three years, then sailed for Hamburg in 1868, as an undocumented stowaway arriving in New York. He made his way to Chicago, where he did a number of odd jobs, but eventually he found gainful employment as a brewer's assistant at the Stinger Brewery in Naperville, Illinois. In 1872, he moved to Denver. In 1873, he purchased a a bankrupted tannery in the town of Golden, and he converted that into a brewery. All of these men, along with many, many others that were not so famous, they were the epitome of the American dream, coming to this country with little or nothing, creating a business empire that became so noteworthy that even today, we still say their names. But what was it that trans... that? that really made it so this country transitioned from being ale drinkers and whiskey drinkers into lager drinkers. Well, first, there was a built-in audience. The prosperity of these German brewers was made possible by the more than 4 million Germans who departed their homeland for a new life in America in the last half of the 19th century. Not surprisingly, the Germans' timeless affinity for lager beer was one of the traditions they did not leave behind in the Exodus. As droves of immigrants landed on the American shores, brewing entered a new era. The beer barons were soon destined to rank among the greatest names in all of American industry. This transformation of the American beer scene by the Germans, although astonishingly rapid, it was not immediate. But they brewed a product that seemed to have universal appeal with the drinking class. Light, clean, Mm. much more refreshing than ale. And in the warm temperatures of the U.S. summers, refreshing beer was welcomed. Being only slightly alcoholic, around 5% ABV, it was enough to bring about a pleasant buzz that engendered camaraderie, but didn't bring on the recklessness and mean-spiritedness that sometimes accompanied hard liquor, especially whiskey, which was, at that time of the founding of these first lager breweries, the most widely drank alcohol in the United States. Now, in many German saloons and beer gardens, spirits were rarely, if ever, sold. It was lager beer that fueled the German get-togethers, their celebrations, their ways of life. It was a part of the German-American experience, and other immigrant groups who came to the same towns, cities, and neighborhoods as these German immigrants, as well as more open-minded 
native stock Americans, they soon adopted lager beer as their preferred beverage. And lager was pretty. Golden, clear, bubbly, served in a clear drinking glass. It was attractive to the eye, which undoubtedly had some appeal for the ale drinkers, but at first, that wasn't what the German brewers were able to brew using Reinheitsgebot, the German beer purity law, here in America. But they now they did, don't get me wrong, they did, use, they did brew according to Reinheitsgebot, but see... The type of barley available here in North America is six-row barley, not the two-row barley of Europe at the time. Six-row barley contains a higher level of amino acids and proteins than two-row barley, and this caused the German brewers' first attempts at brewing lager to be cloudy, which this wasn't what they wanted. You see, the fashion at the time they wanted to brew lagers that were like those coming out of the Pils region in Bohemia and Bavaria, clear and golden. They wanted a pretty beer. And to import two-row barley from Europe at the time to brew beer in the United States is just too costly. It's, it's out of the reach. So what did they do? Well, to get the cloudiness out of a beer out of the beer, they started to add corn and rice to the brew, which lightened the color and cleared up the liquid, but it also meant that there, were, there was less malt in the beer. And this started in the late 1800s. It had nothing to do as a cost-cutting feature. It wasn't done because barley was scarce. It was simply an aesthetic choice at that time. The brewers wanted the beer to be pretty. Now, they also produced darker colored beers, amber lagers and Bach beers, but more and more, as time went on, they moved towards light colored golden lagers. So coming into the late 1800s, before the turn of the century, there are nearly 5,000 brewing companies operating in the United States. And as the popularity of German-American style lagers grows even more intense, more and more of the breweries are switching production over from ales to lager. And it was this golden age of German-American brewing. It looked as if nothing could stop these beer barons. But there was something on the horizon that they hadn't counted on in the 1840s and 50s. These German brewers who had come to this new land, the land of the free and the home of the brave, there were people out there who wanted to close them down, take away a citizen's right to enjoy a legal product, put hundreds and thousands, if not more people out of work, they wanted to shut down the breweries. They wanted to shut down the distilleries. It was the followers of the temperance movement, and they were gaining political power. And how the beer barons fought back against this is a great story. But I'm out of time right now. <laughs> I went on my rant too long. So I'll have to tell you next week about how our government went about changing the Constitution from a document that protected a citizen's rights to a document that took their rights away, and how these German-American brewers tried to unite to fight back against the coming storm. Now, one last thing I want to say tonight since I've been talking about immigrants and immigration, is the hatred we've seen in Charlottesville, Virginia this past week. This is nothing new in this country. Hatred and the people who espouse hate have been with us in America throughout our history. It was hatred like this that we see now that has been with us all along. The anti-German, the anti-Irish, anti-Italian, anti-Eastern European, anti-Catholicism, anti-Semitism, 
along with racism and bigotry and persecution towards minorities. All of this in the 19th and 20th centuries. But we as a nation have always worked it out. Here now in the 21st century, we must come together and speak out against hate and everyone who professes, condones, or accepts it. This isn't about politics. This is about doing what is right. Winston Churchill once said that you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. I hope we're ready to do the right thing. History Episode 37 was written and produced by me, Alan Tatman. The Technical Director of History is Brian McGeorge. The Marketing Director of History is Tim I'm Not the Bomber McVeigh. History is a Wild Irish production. All rights reserved is recorded at River's Edge Studios and Patty Malone's Irish Pub in the scenic capital of Jefferson City. And this week's phrase for you podcast listeners, I've got the time if you've got the beer. That's the phrase this week. I've got the time if you've got the beer. Come on in and tell your server that phrase and you'll get a special offer from the pub. A special thank you to all of our Patreon patrons and uh, you help us keep the lights on. And... uh, Sign up this month and get 10% off of the Grand Irish Pub Crawl Tour next Memorial Day. Thanks to everyone who shared the post on Facebook or retweeted. And a special thank you to everyone who shared the podcast through iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Theme music for history is from Ben Sound. Do you need music for a project? Then contact BEN Sound and see what they might have for you. And as I said, we've got our special offer this month, the Grand Irish Pub Crawl Tour of Ireland. That's May 28th through June 8th, 2018. And 10% off for all existing Patreon patrons and any new Patreon patrons that sign up at the $10 level here in the month of August. If you'd like all the details, just send me an email, cheers at history.com, or shoot me a message on Facebook. And I'll get it out to you, uh, tell you all about it. You can also give me a call, 573-338-5990. If you liked this week's program, please let us know on Facebook, Twitter, or give us an iTunes review. Any show ideas or comments, or you just want to tell us something about the show, send us an email to cheersathistory.com, or leave us a voicemail on the History Hotline, 409-29-BOOZE. That's 409-292-6693. And thanks again, everybody, for listening. I promise I'll keep trying to get better. And if I don't see you at the pub, I'll see you right here next week. And merrily, as always, you are the measure of my dreams. Goodbye, everybody. And now, it's time for Drunk Uncle Al's Joke of the week. So this fellow, he goes into the doctor, see, and he, he goes into the doc. He says, hey, doc, I, I've, had, I've talked like this my entire life, and I, I want to talk like a normal person. I'm, I'm really tired of this. What, what can you do for me? And so they ran a bunch of tests on him. The doctor brought the fellow back in for a consult, and he says, well, he says, see, the only thing that I can see in your charts that is abnormal from anybody else is the fact that you're very well endowed down there. Your organ, it's, it's bigger than most men's. And the other thing is, sir, you've got, you've got twice as many testicles as anybody else. You have four balls. Now, he said, we could try an experimental procedure. I've heard of it being done before in cases like this. We could remove some part or all of it and see if we get your, your voice back. I don't care, Doc. I gotta get. I gotta want to talk like a normal person. Please help me out here. Okay, so 
doctor says, fine. They scheduled the surgery. He came in, had part of uh, part of his penis taken off and two of his testicles. A couple of months go by. The patient comes back to the doctor and he says, Doc, everything's great. I mean, I'm talking good, but you know what? Down to the performance, my wife's just not quite happy with where things were. And, you know, I'd like to, well, is there any possibility that we might be able to get this reversed? And the doctor, he shook his head and he goes, no, we found somebody to donate that to. All right, guys. (laughs) I'll see you next week. Bye.